Welcome to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and today I'm going to share with you a speech that I wrote that talks about why it's so difficult for us to address the alcoholism and alcohol abuse epidemic in America. I talk about the stigma that's associated with the disease, how powerful the name alcoholic is, the word alcoholic is, and how much that creates shame and why people are so reluctant to admit to having that affliction. I compare alcoholism to cancer, the probably most best known uh, epidemic disease that there is out there, and talk about why alcoholism is even a bigger deal and even more deadly disease. So I hope you listen to the this speech, and if you take something away from it that um, is compelling, that if you find that I make an argument that makes sense for your organization to help destigmatize this affliction, then I hope you'll contact me and we can talk about possibly me coming and presenting this or something similar to your organization. I can be reached at matt at soberandunashamed.com or you can visit my website, the outspoken page of soberandunashamed.com. So I, I hope you like what you hear and, and maybe learn something today. The laughter of children echoed off the oil paintings, open shutter photography, and charcoal drawings hanging from the walls of the expansive gallery. What seemed a scattered and random arrangement of art to me surely had a methodical placement contrived by my good friend Mike, who is the exhibit curator and gallery owner. I am not a connoisseur of art, but I appreciated the toil of the artists as I munched on my appetizer plate of bruschetta and stuffed mushroom caps. I cautiously navigated the spacious room, amidst a massive game of tag played by the dozens of children at the family-friendly party graciously hosted by Mike and his wife, Missy. I knew more than half of the bustling attendees making the evening as comfortable and festive as it was sophisticated and refined. There was an abundance of conversation, laughter, hors d'oeuvres, and of course, drink. There were bottles upon bottles of Merlots and Cabs and Red Zinfandels and Pinot Noirs on the bar, and in an ice-filled stainless steel tub, chilled Chardonnays and Rieslings and Gewürztraminers and Pinot Grigios. The bottles served both as gifts to our host and as contributions to the enjoyment of the revelers. My appetizer plate was balanced carefully atop my pint of New Belgium Brewing's 1554 Black Lager, the true focus of my attention. Mike had carefully chosen and generously supplied a keg of one of the finest, most flavorful, and fashionable microbrews available from our home state of Colorado. As suave and worldly as the occasion purported to be for the beer swillers in attendance, it was a good old-fashioned keg party. It was late in the first decade of the 2000s, and hard liquor simply wasn't in fashion for such occasions. As the party wore on, and for some the beer and wine flowed more copiously than for others, Polite courtesy evaporated and playful mischief ensued. My friend Carmen and I began rooting through the bar. I'm not sure what we started out looking for, but what we found was an unopened bottle of tequila, surely left behind from a wedding reception or charity fundraiser hosted at the gallery. Full of alcohol-supplied boldness, we didn't bother asking for permission from Mike or Missy before we opened the bottle and started pouring shots for the party's more enthusiastic imbibers. At the beginning, Carmen and I had some takers, 
some fellow serious drinkers who were up for anything, or, you know, at least up for a shot of tequila. As we continued to pour, our encouragement for others got louder and more obnoxious, and our fellow partakers drifted away until we were the only two willing to drink ourselves into oblivion. My wife Sherry and Carmen's husband Lawrence, they looked on in feigned laughter and exasperated sighs as they watched our roadshow of disaster get louder and less coherent. Sherry knew, and I assume Lawrence did too, that interruption at this point would have been met with loud, slobbery resistance. They also knew it would have been futile. Like the car accident you don't want to see but can't take your eyes off, Sherry and Lawrence knew they had to watch us go, let us drink until we were done, and simply ride out the evening as disgusted and reluctant bystanders. And so we drank and laughed and drank and hugged and drank and cheered and drank and disrupted and drank and annoyed. As the tequila drinking continued, our cuteness and enthusiasm turned to clownish gluttony. The hour was late and the sippers and polite casual drinkers had long since departed. As the last few of our friends collected their children and made their way home, the party was over for Carmen and me as well. We were escorted to our respective cars by our respective spouses. Because our children were still quite young, they thought their exceedingly drunk parents were merely acting loud and silly. We weaved our way out of the gallery with most of our dignity still intact. Sure, we had clearly turned a sophisticated occasion into a bit of, of, a, of a fraternity party, but we were still laughing and friendly after all, and no harm was done. No harm to the artwork. No harm to the children. No harm to our friends who thought Carmen and I cut loose a little more than usual. No harm at all. At least no outwardly visible harm. I passed out in the passenger seat almost immediately. I do not know this from my own memory, but rather from the story as told me by my wife Sherry the next day. When we arrived at home, her attentions were appropriately on getting our young children to brush their teeth and put on their pajamas and climb into bed. She had neither the tolerance and patience for me, nor the time and energy to get me from the car and into our bed. So she left me in the locked car in our driveway to spend the night. I awoke drenched in sweat from the hot morning sun, covered in my own vomit. The classy hors d'oeuvres, refined microbrew beer, and biting tequila covered my chest and pooled in my lap. My head pounded from dehydration and my throat burned from the acidic middle-of-the-night upheaval. I was disgusting. My 80-proof vomit-soaked clothing was the very least of it. Again, I had taken a charming occasion and lost control of my drinking. I turned a fun night for my wife into a nightmare of single parenting and fearful anticipation about her husband's next drinking antic. My friends would later describe the occasion as a lively party where Carmen and Matt were entertaining and probably drank a little too much. I would describe the event as a soul-crushing failed attempt to control the uncontrollable. Like trying to stop, stop a shark when there's blood in the water. I set out that night to eat, drink, and have fun. Instead, I poisoned my brain into oblivion. Thank God my wife left me in the car, so I was sitting up when my involuntary systems ejected the poison. I could have died in the middle of the night by choking on my own regurgitated drink. My own fun time. That morning after was the first of many times to come when I wished I was dead. The whole next day felt like death. The physical discomfort was excruciating, but it paled in comparison to my mental anguish. I spent the day slowly putting the pieces back together. I cleaned the car and cleaned myself. I apologized sincerely and continuously to my wife. I dragged my carcass around the house full of despair and regret. I was filled with shame. 
I was ashamed of my drunken overconsumption. I was ashamed that I could not pinpoint the tipping point from boisterous partying to out-of-control recklessness. I was ashamed that I had no hope of preventing it from happening again. As the day turned to evening, my hopeless despair overwhelmed me. In spite of my continued alcohol-induced nausea and headache, in spite of the guilt and the shame I felt about my drinking, in spite of the pain my drunkenness caused my beloved bride, I did what we alcoholics do to ease the pain the drinking causes. I opened a beer, and then another, and then another, and I drank until it didn't hurt anymore. That is a true story, and it took place about a decade ago. It was one of several bottoms I experienced as an alcoholic, but sadly, it was not the end of my drinking career. That would come many years later. I wish my story was unique, or or at least rare. Unfortunately, my story is amazingly common. We are often classified as high-functioning alcoholics, and we are everywhere, hiding in plain sight. We are across the boardroom table from you at work. We are in the parents' cheering section at your kids' soccer game. We're in the PTA meeting, and we're sitting in the seat next to you right now. We are omnipresent, and our numbers are staggering. Let's compare those of us afflicted with alcoholism to those afflicted with a disease that is not relegated to hiding in the shadows. Almost 15 million Americans have cancer, and over 15 million Americans are alcoholics, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Cancer is caused by a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Alcoholism is caused by a combination of environmental and genetic factors. Lung cancer is the most prevalent form of cancer worldwide. Smoking cigarettes, a personal choice, is the most common cause of lung cancer. Drinking alcohol, a personal choice, is a requirement to become an alcoholic. Many forms of cancer are treatable, and alcoholism is treatable too. There are many parallels between cancer and alcoholism, so why do we treat these two diseases so differently? Every week in church, worshipers ask us to pray for family and friends who have been diagnosed with cancer. I watch as eyes drop, shoulders droop, and heads shake slowly at the insidious nature of this relentless and tragic disease. Our church has a meals committee that springs into action to coordinate a rotation of dinner deliveries for families that are dealing with cancer treatments. There are offers to pick up kids from school and drive them to soccer practice. There are offers to mow lawns and care for pets. Tears are shed and prayers are prayed. There are lots of big, heartfelt, you know, squeezy hugs. This is spirituality in action, and it's beautiful to see. And yet I can recall only one time in the past couple of years when a member of the church asked us to pray for an alcoholic friend. The church congregant said, My friend has fallen off the wagon. He is causing lots of problems for his family. Eyes dropped, shoulders drooped, and heads shook, but not out of sorrow for the tragedy that had stricken the alcoholic, Rather, a sense of this alcoholic man's failure to perform the basic functions of husband and father left our congregation with a sense of disapproval for his misconduct. The alcoholic's family was the victim, but he was the evildoer. No meals were offered, no hugs were shared. The prayers were for the alcoholic to stop ruining his life and the lives of those around him. If you have cancer, you are a victim. If you have alcoholism, you are defective. About six months into my sobriety after a 10-year battle with alcoholism, my father told me he was very proud of me for quitting drinking. His remarks were sincere and loving. I know that my drinking had caused my parents stress and worry because of the effects it was having on my marriage and the potential damage it could have done to my children. To drive his point home, I'm sure in an effort to prevent me from falling off the wagon, 
My dad looked me in the eyes and said sternly, you have a drinking problem. You have a drinking problem? That shameful accusation overwhelmed the love I felt for my father at that moment. I didn't have a problem. I had a brain-warping, depression-causing, debilitating disease. A deeply embedded splinter is a problem. An unidentified rash is a problem. Alcoholism is a disease caused by genetic flaws combined with lifestyle choices, which are the exact same causes for most cancers. Alcoholism is a disease of shame. The afflicted are considered to have a personal defect, a lack of willpower. For many years, the mere fact that I was addicted to a highly addictive substance filled me with shame. It made me feel like a weak man who lied and deceived to protect the secret of his predilection. Well, I will hide and shame no longer. Don't misunderstand my point. I am ashamed of my actions as an active alcoholic. I take accountability for my behavior and have apologized earnestly for my transgressions. However, I have shed the shame of contracting the disease of alcoholism. I have a disease that affects slightly more people than cancer. That is not my fault. Now I feel no shame for my diagnosis. I have spent my life immersed in an environment that celebrates the glories of alcohol. My father drank every day of my childhood. My high school friends and I experimented with the same social lubricant we watched our parents enjoy. In college, alcohol became the center of my fraternity universe. After college, I got a job in an industry that is known for a heavy drinking culture. In reading the stories of other alcoholics, I've learned that most professions and industries have a heavy drinking culture. Writers and artists drink to unleash their creativity. Doctors and lawyers drink to deal with the stress. And the news media and law enforcers drink to create a bond with their sources. Then our cultural culture vilifies and shames those among us who fall victim to the very substance we spend a lifetime consuming in order to celebrate, lubricate, and deal with life. Substances that called cancer are called carcinogens. Our society spends billions of dollars to remediate, legislate, and educate carcinogens out of our lives. Then our society spends billions of dollars on advertising and legislative lobbying to convince us our lives are incomplete without the alcoholic's equivalent of a carcinogen, alcohol. I hate cancer. It is said that cancer touches everyone, and I am no exception. Two of my grandparents died of cancer. My father has been treated for cancer. I have a former co-worker who was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor when we were in our 30s, and I have countless neighbors and acquaintances who have battled cancer. Nothing would bring me joy more than if society reaches our universally strived for goal of eradication of cancer. But I would love for us to eradicate alcoholism as well. Treatments exist with varying success rates. What works for one alcoholic is often different from the cure for another. Just like cancers can come out of remission, alcoholics can relapse and have to start the battle all over again. For all of their similarities, from number of people afflicted to death and destruction left in their wake, there is one major difference between cancer and alcoholism. That difference is found in the attitude of you and me and everyone around us. Cancer victims are treated with meals and prayers and hugs and offers to help. Alcoholics are sent away to secluded infirmaries or church basements to drink coffee from styrofoam cups and confess their sins to the other cretins of the underworld. When cancer returns, it is said to come out of remission. When an alcoholic relapses, he is said to have fallen off the wagon. The barriers to a cure for cancer are money and research and time. The barriers to a cure for alcoholism are attitude and misunderstanding and shame. Removing any of these barriers requires Herculean societal effort. 
In the case of cancer, our society is unified in our resolve to make such an effort. In the case of alcoholism, our society is too in love with alcohol to remove the barriers to a cure. Thus, our society itself is the barrier to the cure for alcoholism. I hope we keep fighting cancer. I hope we keep caring for the victims among us. But I hope we start to look on alcoholics as victims of a life-ravaging disease. I hope we drag alcoholism out of the shadows and have full-throated conversations about society's culpability instead of whispers about shame and lack of willpower. For starters, maybe hug an alcoholic and ask how you can help. It should be easy to find one of us. There's slightly more of us than the victims of the disease that touches all of our lives. The cure to this life-ravaging disease is right there. It's on the tip of our tongues. It is about effort and attitude rather than scientific experimentation and money. If we want to cure alcoholism, we must eradicate the associated stigma and shame. The shame and stigma associated with my label kept me drinking for many years when I knew I was in deep trouble. Alcoholic, what a despicable word, I thought. I'm not an alcoholic. I've never had a DUI. I have a successful career and a stable family. I'm not like those people. There were many days when I spent hours performing mental gymnastics as I considered and compared and classified and downplayed my drinking. The argument raged in my head while the quicksand that alcohol had become slowly engulfed me in misery. I was in anguish, but at least I thought I wasn't an alcoholic. The very word conjures images of weak and hopeless addicts sitting on metal folding chairs in damp church basements, chain-smoking cigarettes, and drinking bad coffee from styrofoam cups, and admitting to each other but to no one else, their deepest and darkest secrets. That image alone added years to my sentence as an active alcoholic. I thought that was what recovery looked like because that's how society portrays the battle against alcoholism. Given that picture as the alternative to the agony that drinking had become for me, I chose alcohol. The label, that vile word, alcoholic, that stood between me and freedom for many years. What changed? What made me admit the truth and tell the world about my addiction? The pain simply became too intense. The pit of despair got too deep. My hopelessness was complete. I no longer wanted to live. Looking back, I'm overcome with grief about the depths I had to reach before I quit drinking. I suffered so much distress, all because of the shame associated with that damn word. Many people I revere in the recovery community hate the word alcoholic. They reject the label and rather focus on the fact that if alcohol is causing problems in our lives, regardless of quantity or frequency consumed, we need to address it. I get it. Just like Alcoholics Anonymous offers the promise of privacy to encourage people to seek help and recovery, other recovery warriors who reject the label offer support to those struggling among us, regardless of how or if they label themselves. But here is where I struggle. When we wear the label only in the private fellowship of other alcoholics, or we reject the label because of the shame and stigma and misunderstanding and legacy it carries with it, the word alcoholic retains its power to cause guilt and humiliation. That is why I choose to own my label. My name is Matt, and I am an alcoholic, not just in church basements, but on the internet and in conversations and whenever anyone cares to listen to my story. I'll share a secret I want to be the face of alcoholism. I reject the notion that only bums living in gutters and men who beat their wives and lose their jobs are addicted to alcohol. Most of the 15 million of us in the United States maintain a facade of happy, successful lives 
while the truth is we're holding it all together by our fingernails and self-medicating with the very substance that is working to tear our lives apart. A quick Google search will reveal a variety of 20-question surveys we can take to help us determine if we are alcoholics. But for me, there really are only two questions. Do you regularly think about alcohol? And that can be either regret from overconsumption or thinking with a thought of desire for the next drink. Do you have those thoughts when you're not drinking? And the second question is, is alcohol causing guilt, pain, or shame in your life? If the answers are yes, your situation is far likelier to get worse than it is to get better. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. You might be managing the chaos for now, but all your efforts are only covering up your truth. You can own your label and do something about it, or you can wait for the DUI or the public humiliation or financial disaster or court-ordered rehab to prove to yourself and everyone you know, alcoholism doesn't go away no matter what name you call it. Since coming out as an alcoholic a few years ago, my life has changed in profound and meaningful ways. Some of the most superficial and casual relationships in my life have taken on a depth and sincerity I never imagined. Everyone has been touched by alcoholism in some way or another. By telling the world of my battle, by owning my label, I invited everyone I know to share their stories and relax their grip on their pain. Each of the first five people I told of my alcoholism listened to my story with a a level of impatience because they wanted their turn. All five of them immediately shared their story of the impact alcohol addiction had on their family. Five for five. That's perfectly tragic. Church friends have pulled me aside to share their experiences in the program, referring to their recovery through AA. Neighbors have thanked me for my story and my honesty with tears in their eyes, hinting about pain in their own lives. Employees, remote acquaintances, and distant relatives have all reached out with offers of support and pleas for help. So many of my relationships have grown and developed in ways that would not have been possible without my openness about my alcoholism. I can see it in their faces and feel the warmth of their smiles. We no longer greet each other with ambivalent politeness. We now welcome each other with a knowing connectedness. Owning my label, alcoholic, has enhanced my relationships in powerful ways and changed my life forever. Owning my label has rendered the word alcoholic powerless. Let's change what it means to be an alcoholic. Let's dispense with the shame and guilt and social disgrace. Becoming an alcoholic means becoming addicted to one of the world's most addictive substances after years of immersion in a culture that celebrates alcohol as the panacea of stress, shyness, anxiety, and boredom. We treat booze as the rewards for adulthood and achievement, then we shame those who fall victim to the terror that washes up in its wake. We spend a lifetime playing with fire, then we act amazed and appalled when some of us get burned. Let's recognize the epidemic of alcoholism for what it is, an inevitable result of using alcohol to lubricate all facets of our society. It is the most widespread preventable disease of our own creation and proliferation. We should treat alcoholics with dignity and compassion rather than hushed whispers and scornful shakes of the head. My ownership of my alcoholism has resulted in an email inbox full of stories from people struggling with their own battles with the drink and looking for someone who understands. By owning my label and sharing my story, strangers have found something with which they can relate. I have been blessed with powerful connections from people in places I least expected. Turning strangers into a support network has been magical, but it pales in comparison to the way I feel about the phone call I received last month. 
One of my own asked me to help him get sober. My stories about the pit of alcoholic despair resonated with a member of my own family, and he wanted to talk to me about sobriety. Had I not owned my label, had I not shared my secret with other with the, with the world, not just with other alcoholics in church basements, had I hidden my label, had I simply abstained at the next family gathering without explanation, this dear sweet relative would not have called me and would not have had the courage to know the similarities of our stories. My honesty gave him the strength to ask for help. Owning my label has set me free from guilt and shame. Owning my label has enhanced friendships and enabled new relationships. Owning my label has rendered the word alcoholic powerless in my life. And now, suddenly, owning my label has transformed a connection with someone I love who is in deep trouble and intense pain. And that makes my addiction an indescribable blessing in my life. A blessing that would not have been possible without God's encouragement to keep an open, honest, and eventually shameless conversation. All I had to do was talk about it. My name is Matt Salis, and I thank God I am an alcoholic. And that's it. That is a speech that I wrote and delivered, and a speech I'm very proud of, hitting on the similarities between alcoholism and cancer, and then also talking about the importance of just doing this, talking about alcoholism, how much it means not only for our own personal recovery and salvation, but even more importantly, to help others who are hiding in the shadows and don't know that the answer is out there, that there is a solution to their disease. But I also think that this speech drives home points for the people who've never experienced a direct connection with alcoholism, people who who don't have a drinking problem. They can see that their own behavior, their own remarks, their own hushed whispers and and smirks um, are doing nothing but exasperating what is truly a disease, a, a disease of brain chemistry and something that's an epidemic on our society. I would love to share this message with you and your community, with your organization. Um, if you'd like to do that, I'd be happy to talk on this topic or, or any other topic related to alcohol and alcohol abuse. I can be reached at matt at soberandunashamed.com or check out the webpage that I have on my site that's just about this, about public speaking. It's called Outspoken and it can be found on the soberandunashamed.com website. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and we'll talk to you next time.